0: God is 100% pure. God is 100% love. God is 100% justice. And here's the challenge for us, we can't fathom that. Because we've never seen it, we've never truly, we've never experienced perfect love. We've never experienced perfect justice. We have remnants of that, but not in the perfection of God. Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, Fear. It was based on Isaiah 6, 1-8. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. What do you most hope for in the world? Or if you could change any one thing in the world, what would you change? I'm guessing many of us would think, you know, peace among nations, that there would be no more war in the world. Or... Or uh, there would be no more food insecure people. That everyone would have enough nutritious food to eat and uh, uh, clean water to drink. Others, uh, that there would be health care for everyone in the world. Or that there would be no more abuse of children or, or sexual abuse in our world. Or that every person would, he would have at least one person who loves them. They know that they are loved. All of us would cry out with all kinds of different things to bring change in this broken, damaged, wounded world in which we live. Well, one of my greatest hopes and one of my greatest prayers, in addition to all these things, but kind of backing up through, through a gospel lens that I prayed for for years and, and I feel having called part of the investment of my life, is that everyone possible would know who Jesus really is so that people wouldn't reject a caricature of Christ that isn't accurate, but they'd know who Jesus really is so they could make an informed choice guided by, by God's spirit. And the reason for that is because I think as God truly changes our hearts, that's what will bring the most healing to the world, where people go from hate to love, from exclusive to reaching out to marginalized people, from self-centered to sacrificial giving, and that that could bring the greatest healing to the world. I believe the hope in the world is Jesus, and God primarily, not exclusively, but primarily works through the church to help bring that hope to the world. So here's what that means. If we're truly going to be part of partnering with God's Spirit to help change the world, if we're going to be a witness for Christ that would cause people to see God's love and grace and truth and justice and, and, and have their hearts changed. By God, it means we need to laser-focus know who God is in the midst of a lot of confusion in our culture. It means we need to really live like Jesus by God's grace in the midst of our confusing world. It means we need to not give up. We're in the midst of our sermon series for the rest of the fall semester when you feel like giving up. Uh, True Life Confession, you know... Confession is good for the soul. It's not best for the reputation, but it's good for the soul, right? True life confession. This is pretty autobiographical because I've had seasons this fall and coming out of the pandemic, not where I felt like giving up on God. I, I love God. I, I, I'm a grateful recipient of grace. I think in many ways my faith is stronger than it's ever been. But my body and my mind and my emotions have been pretty spent. And part of it is just with anguish over what's happening in our country and in our world. Part of it is sometimes I see the witness of the church in our culture. And I, and I think, God, would you just come back and clean this mess up? And, um, and sometimes it's because of some anxiety that I struggle with. So I think all of us in different seasons of our lives will feel like giving up in, in different things. And we're going to be meeting different people in Scripture from now until we start our Advent series before Christmas. And just seeing how God ministered to real-life people like you and me and helped them not to give up and actually grow and actually thrive and actually make a difference in their generation and many for generations to come. And today we come to a guy named Isaiah. Now, Isaiah lived about 700 B.C., so he's like 2,700 years ago. But you know, his culture resembled ours in many ways. And he felt like giving up for two reasons. One, he was jaded about his culture. He saw his culture, and he thought, God, this is not redeemable. Why bother? And the second thing is, he had an encounter with God where he looked at himself. And he said, wait a minute, God. If I, I don't think you really could or would want to work through me. Woe is me. And that's where we find ourselves in different seasons of our lives. And so we you join me in Isaiah chapter six. It's found in the blue Bibles in front of you on page 680. So rather you're here worshiping in the house or part of our church family uh, scattered who's worshiping online, cue up your device, turn in your Bible or the blue Bible, page 680, Isaiah chapter six. Let, let's have everyone somehow looking at Isaiah chapter six. If you're not sure where it is, look at the person next to you. And like I often say, if you're embarrassed by that next week, just sit on the other side and you won't have to worry about it, okay? Isaiah chapter 6, join me in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died... Or let's put on the brakes, <laughs> because we can skip over this, but this gives us a tremendous amount of context to understand and connect and, and kind of enter into Isaiah's experience together. The year that King Uzziah died was a marker stone for the culture in which he lived. It might be today like saying... It happened in the year that the planes flew into the towers, 9-11. It was the year that COVID captivated our world. Everybody knows. It's an ancient accounting. The year that King Uzziah died, because it was a hinge in the history of God's people. Uzziah died in the year 740 BC. He had reigned in Israel for 52 years. And part of his time as the king Israel had reached some of the zenith of, of its power, of its impact, of its economic thriving, and in different seasons, spiritually. But he was diseased the last several years of his reign, and there began to be decline, and then after he died, meaning in the year that King Uzziah died, it would begin a spiral. And the spiral would lead into idolatry, to where there would be such materialism that there was incredible oppression, There would actually be human sacrifices in Israel, which God forbade. You never sacrifice another human, even child sacrifices because of the idolatry. There was social injustice with tremendous oppression, political corruption. Out of fear, there were alliances made that led into a couple of really destructive wars. And finally, the 10 northern tribes of Israel would be completely destroyed in the year 722 BC. That's just... About 20 years after Uzziah died is a huge change point. And so Isaiah sees what's happening. He he sees they're on the eve of this. And doesn't that kind of sound familiar, what I just described, in some ways? And so we can feel like giving up. I think sometimes the needs in our world or our frustration with our world can become so ominous that, that it immobilizes us. And we just don't do anything. And so that's what Isaiah is struggling with. And so a question for us, you know, how can we be faithful and be the people God calls us to be in the midst of everything and not give up? We'll continue in verse 1. And Isaiah has this amazing portrait of who God really is. A reminder, don't forget the God who you worship when the world seems to be chaotic. Continue in verse 1. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Isn't it fascinating? Isaiah says, "I saw, not I read a treatise." Says, "I saw." See, what do we most need in the midst of a chaotic, confusing world? We need to clarify a greater 2020 vision of who God really is in the midst of a lot of the confusion. Because here's what can happen to us: all of us struggle with this when there is a crisis, whatever that crisis is. We're in the midst of a crisis. And we can either view God through the lens of our crisis. In other words, we have life experiences and we shape God out of our life experience. This must be what God's like because this is what I've experienced. And God is shaped by our, we kind of create a God in the image of some of our life experiences. The other option, or that we'll be striving to do the rest of our lives, is when we allow God to shape who we are and what God calls us to in the midst of our crisis. And we'll spend the rest of our lives struggling with that. Is it? Am I allowing my life experiences to shape God, or is God shaping me to see these from God's view, to know that God is present with me through this, and that God can redeem these things somehow for His glory and shape me through even these crises? And so here's what Isaiah sees. Uh, in verse one, there's two descriptors. First of all, it's a throne. Who sits on a throne? A king, a sovereign. And what God's reminding Isaiah is, I'm still on the throne. I may be allowing things. Uh, I've allowed a fallen world in which out of that my love and grace will be on display so that the world might know my character. But it's a fallen, damaged, wounded world, but I'm still on the throne. I'm still sovereign over everything. And then the second thing is that his robe filled the temple. And that's a portrait of the presence of God anywhere we go. It's like the train of God's robe fills the world, that there's nowhere that we'll ever go that God's not present with us there, even though sometimes it feels like God checked out. Those are a couple important things for us to remember. In the midst of crisis, when we feel like, well, God, you just don't, He doesn't feel like you're even near me, and God promises, I, I haven't left you, I haven't forsaken you. I'll walk through this with you. And these kind of funky descriptors now move on to verse 2. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now this kind of looks like a science fiction movie, doesn't it? It's like uh, the sci-fi channel, okay? Who are these seraphs? Well, it's the only place in the Bible where we meet seraphs. It comes from the Hebrew word saraph, and it means fire, And here's what it really is. These are like created beings. These are like angels. And their job description in this moment is to reveal who God is so that Isaiah will have a clear portrait of who God is in the midst of the confusion that he's experiencing. And notice with their wings, with two wings that cover their face. What's that about? They're in the sight of a holy God. It's a sign of like this God is so holy, so pure, so perfect, so trustworthy. We, we, We can't even gaze upon him. With two wings, they're covering their feet. Why? It's holy ground. They dare not even be on the same ground as this holy God. It's all a portrait in order for Isaiah to see who God really is. And this holiness of God, which we'll have a breakthrough of why that's important to us, comes in verse 3. And they're calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook And the temple was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, The word holy is translated from the Hebrew word kadosh. And it literally means the etymology is to cut something away or two things that are completely different. It's like oil and water or good and evil or light and darkness or Yankees and Red Sox, right? It's two things that don't belong together. Okay? Right? Did you know God's a Red Sox fan? Did you know that? But occasionally, like this season, evil seems to reign in the world. Anyway, so I'm in trouble now. Yeah, send your emails. Go ahead. But the point is this. God is 100% pure. God is 100% love. God is 100% justice. God is 100% truth. God is 100% light. God is 100% grace. And here's the challenge for us. We can't fathom that because we've never seen it. We've never truly ex- We've never experienced perfect love. We've never experienced perfect justice. We've never experienced perfect beauty. We've never experienced perfect hope. We have remnants of that because it's like we look through a dark glass, uh, a glass darkly, right? It's like, it's like we see in a fallen, damaged, depraved world, the image of God is still there, but it's marred. It's damaged. It's... And so we see some of this. But not in the perfection of God. And here's a few things that this means for us. This is where God's holiness makes a huge difference. First of all, in a fallen, damaged world, it's hard to trust, isn't it? Because all of us have been hurt. It might have been when we were kids by a parent. It might be someone who abused abused us. It might have been in a relationship when we got dumped. It might have been someone who we trusted, who uh, abandoned us. Whatever it is, we've all been hurt. And so because of that, something closes off within us, and we say, I'm never going there again because I'm never going to be wounded like that again. And in some ways, to be a little cautious is wise, but we close ourselves off, and then we look to God, and we say, well, God, I'll I'll trust you, but, but only so far because I've been wounded before. But God is kadosh. God is cut differently. God is completely different. God is trustworthy. Unlike even the best that this world might have to offer. Well, I have to remind myself of that to really trust God, the depths of my heart, and to obey even when I don't fully understand it or I really don't want to. It's like, God, help me to trust you because you are holy, you are pure, you are perfect. I've never experienced it in this world. And I think sometimes then, as we learn to trust God, it opens our heart to learn to, in, in careful relationships, to trust people as well. Uh, uh, the second thing is, Because we live in this world where we've never seen the perfection of God completely, we can settle for what this world has. And we kind of say, "Eh, that's just the way the world is. So we settle for whatever love, or we settle for whatever justice, or we settle for whatever it is. And we just kind of say, well, that's just the way the world is. Instead of aspiring to experience more of God's love to be those who would extend God's grace and God's truth and God's justice in a broken world, because we've never really seen it before. A third thing about God's holiness is it can evoke uh, questions that all of us can ask. Now, wait a minute. If this God is holy and perfect and pure, why is there suffering in the world? Now, I'll share one thing because it relates to this theme, but... um, Uh, we had a whole sermon series in the midst of the coronavirus, in the midst of the pandemic, um, titled Why? And we looked at different questions of why, those kind of challenging questions of why evil happens in the world and different things. So feel free to go to the website, find those if you want to listen to those. At least my best effort as a fellow sojourner to understand some of what Scripture teaches about why there's suffering and pain and hurt and disasters in a world in which God is on the throne. But... One of the reasons that I think connects with this message of of how a holy God can allow suffering is because God is patient. Mm -hmm. See, sometimes I want to say, God, would you just destroy evil? We take those people, God, come on, come on now and just destroy evil. You know, God, I'm grateful you didn't answer someone else's prayer like that years ago because I didn't know you then and I wasn't ready and you would have destroyed me. God, thank you that you were patient for a while. But now could you just take it out of here? Wait a minute. And sometimes I pray, God. Matter of fact, recently I prayed, Lord, you know, Lord Jesus, come back. Come back and just straighten out this mess. But wait a minute, Jesus, you know, there's some people I know and I really love. And I know you love. And they're not ready. Could could, could you wait just a little bit longer? But God's patience means that in a fallen, depraved world, there's sometimes going to be evil and pain. suffering but God is patient with us and so Isaiah thinks he's destroyed he thinks I'm giving up it's over look at verse 5 woe to me I cried I'm ruined I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty Isaiah's had a huge transition in his life he's moved from comparing himself to the culture you know I'm doing okay in this culture And now he sees himself in the sight of God. And he says, whoa. See, God doesn't grade on a curve. Because we can always find someone, can't we? Who's a little worse off than we are. And then we feel a little bit good about ourselves. And we delude ourselves. But Isaiah is now looking at the holiness of God and he says, oh. He says, well, I'm ruined. But here's what's amazing. Isaiah's going to be humbled, just like all of us need to be humbled. I don't mean humiliated. I mean humbled in a good way, in the safety of the God who's holy, who we can trust. See, Isaiah was an elite. He was a member of the royal family. His his cousins were like um, the kings, okay? So he's part of the royal family. He was a court prophet through five different kings, In a time when prophets were often even sometimes seen as one step above the king because it's a theocracy and the prophets were sometimes more highly honored than the kings. He was a renowned theologian and he was a proud nationalist, Israel. Because times were good and God's blessing Israel and it's all about it. He's a proud nationalist. Respected the theologian, the court prophet, the royal family, and now he's humbled. And he says, wait a minute, you know, this, this culture... This culture has some needs and needs some change, but then he brings it home to himself, and he recognizes his own sin, and he confesses the sins of his nation. And what he's really saying is, "I need, I need to change." I remember years ago opening a sermon that um, actually came down to the floor and just asked. If you could change any one thing in the world, what would you change? You know, people called out different things. And then one guy said, me. And I remember thinking, whoa, me. I should have thought of that, huh? Me. God, would you start by changing me? Isn't that powerful? Because I think so easily we can complain about our culture, and I've been doing that too much. Now, there's a difference between a holy discontent and brokenness. And, and, And we can so easily blame others. That's how it goes, isn't it? You know, a lot of young people, ah, oh, the old people got us into this mess. A lot of old, old, old all those young people. And, and the Republicans, they blame the de- oh, the Democrats. And the Democrats, they blame the Republicans, right? And I mean, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? The wealthy say, you know, if the poor would just work hard, they could lift themselves up. And the poor say, if the rich just wouldn't hoard so much. And it's always easy for us to almost elitist say, you know, if only that in, in our culture, then, yeah. And certainly those may be things that we need to be advocating for. But it still comes down to real change is only going to begin when we change. And then we can be change agents who reflect who God really is more accurately to our culture. It's when the church stops complaining and instead is filled with God's broken heart over the broken heartness of their culture and commits, we want to love like Jesus. We want to serve like Jesus, and we'll share truth like Jesus, and we'll sacrifice like Jesus, and we'll seek justice like Jesus. I'm grateful to be the pastor of First Baptist because I think there's so many people in our church family pursuing exactly these things. Let's continue to do those things to be shaped ever more by the God who, whose witness, whether we know it or not, is like ripples in the ponds of our lives going out to the people who we share. Life with. So Isaiah feels like giving up. He says, whoa, "Whoa to me!" By the way, the word is "oy," "oy," and it's a word that means cursed. He he's literally saying, "I'm cursed by God." And then he says, "I'm ruined." And this is one of those scenes, I mean, in almost kind of like a science fiction movie here, all these things happening in the temple, and all of a sudden, the music, the dramatic music would start, you know what I mean? And the music would start rising, and everybody gets tense, because here's what Isaiah is expecting. He thinks, oh my goodness, here comes a hot coal of fire. I'm going to be obliterated by God. Because throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, fire is usually a sign of God's judgment so he thinks i am going to be destroyed but instead let's see what happens verse six then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand he had taken with tongs from the author, from the altar with it he touched my mouth and said see this is a touched your uh, lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for see instead he experiences grace Isaiah is guilty. He knows he's guilty. He's expecting the consequences of it. He felt like giving up. And then what happens is the seraph, did you notice the seraph doesn't even touch the coal? With tongs, he gets this hot burning coal, right? And Isaiah's thinking, I'm destroyed. And instead, it atones for his sin. And God expresses grace for him because he's repented. And he's confessed. He said, God, I, I have stuff in me. I need, I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. God, I want to change. And the truth is, we're guilty too. When we acknowledge, when we confess. We're guilty too. I'm guilty. We are. But you know, about 700 years after Isaiah would come another person. And this person would, would cry out, Whoa! Actually, the quote was, my God, my God, why have you forgiven me, Jesus on the cross, who felt utterly betrayed by God? Jesus, too, would take the fire of our sins, the fiery judgment upon himself. And there would be an earthquake like with the temple. And, and the temple, just like in Isaiah's time, in Jesus' time, would also be shaken. And the Curtain in the temple into the holy of holies would rend, would would tear apart, and it was God's way of showing wh- where I used to um, manifest myself on earth, and only a high priest once a year could enter. Now you can stroll into the holy of holies, and the relationship has been restored between a broken, damaged, depraved, sinful people and a holy, pure, perfect God, and we have freedom to be in the presence of God without shame. Because Jesus took the fiery wrath of God on the cross for us so we can be set free. Amen? Amen. That is good news. Jesus too was laid out on an altar. Just like Isaiah seeing the altar and sacrifice for us to purify us. Just like what happened with Isaiah. That's our new identity in Christ. And see how Isaiah responds. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. See, Isaiah has gone from conformed to the culture to transformed by an encounter with God. And that's a question for all of us. Will we continue to be conformed? This is something we'll make decisions about every day and moment by moment and decision by decision in our life. Will we be more conformed by the culture or more transformed by God's grace, as we're grateful recipients of God's grace when there's a clash between Christ and culture. And then, you know, Isaiah doesn't ask, wait a minute, God, you want me to go? Wait, 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 hold on. The culture's a mess. I don't think there's anything we can do, God. And what difference could I make, God, because I'm kind of a messed up guy. And, Could you define before I say yes exactly what you want me to do? And uh, uh, God, what would it cost? Could you lay it out first before I... It's not what he says. He just says, here I am, God. Send me. Here's what he's really saying, I think. What I've just experienced, I want everyone I know to experience. Your love and your grace. Because I said, woe is me. I'm destroyed. I felt like giving up. And you have renewed me. And you're transforming me, and now I know I'm loved, and I'm forgiven, and I'm called to be your servant in this broken world. God, I want everyone to experience what I've just experienced. Mm. But it was a costly commitment for Isaiah. We won't study this now, but if you look at the following verses, the rest of the chapter, God's reminding him, you know, people are going to be hearing, but they're not going to be understanding They're going to be listening, but they're not going to be. Isaiah, your message, not by all, but overall as a culture, it's going to be rejected. It's going to be really difficult. It's going to be really painless or painful. And sometimes you're going to look at it and think it's not doing much good. Isn't that true in our lives too, sometimes? Sometimes what we really bank on is, God, I'm being faithful. And I'm trusting somehow that your spirit is doing far more than what I can sometimes see before my eyes. Just like most of the people of Scripture in their moment... Most of them had no idea the big picture redemptive mission that God had called them to be part of. And then someday God gave them from the balcony and said, let me just show you your faithfulness, your paltry faithfulness, your, your, your generosity, and your sacrifice. Let me show you the impact that that had, maybe for generations to come. And so we really have to ask, when we choose to invite Christ into our life, or when we did that, did we invite Christ to be our personal assistant? Right? It's like, hey, you know, um, I think Jesus will make my life better. So would you be my personal assistant? Sometimes it'll start like that, but then comes a discipleship journey where we say, wait a minute. You know, I, I, I. matter of fact, a lot of our culture, a lot of American Christianity is still, this is what Jesus will do for you. You know, your marriage will get better. Your finances will get better. You'll be happier. I mean, Jesus will kumbaya, okay? and And... And some of those things can sometimes be true, because I think often a Christ-centered marriage or Christ-centered with our finances, Christ-centered how we go to work, it can, can, can lead to great blessing. But let's remember this, God's greatest agenda isn't for us to have a lot of stuff or have an easy, happy life. God's agenda for us is we'd be shaped more like Christ, so that we would be connected to the fullness of life that God has for us now, so that we'd be Christ's witness in the world, and that then in eternity we would look back and say, oh God, what an adventure, challenging adventure that you took me on to shape me more like you and prepare me for eternity. So God loves to bless us, but God will never. If so, Elon Musk would, would, would be the most holy Christian in the world, <laughs> right? See, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Sometimes it's costly. But remember, we can either say, I'm a Christian, title only, Or we can say, you know, I'm becoming a Christ follower, but we're following in the footsteps of the one who poured out his life to bless the world. God is still asking, whom shall I send? Who will go? Who will love like Jesus? Who will serve like Jesus? Who will share like Jesus? Who will speak truth like Jesus? Who will sacrifice like Jesus? to be my witnesses in a broken world that I love and God says my heart is broken over that's the God we love and we serve I pray we won't give up but I pray that we'll persevere okay maybe we need to rest sleep well care for ourselves and in the midst of that out of that can come people who represent Christ in our broken world Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamherst.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.